You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. So in 2023, yeah, like after a very slow stainless growth year, we're, this year we're expecting to see a pretty strong rebound next year. Um, but we really are seeing huge amounts of supply coming on stream in the form of MPI, um, the nickel hydroxide uh, intermediates from the HPAL plants, and in the form of um, laterite mat from the conversion of MPI as well. And so we expect to see the market in a surplus in, in 2023 and for the subsequent years. Um, of about 100,000 tonnes, which is not a small amount, but then it is, we're, we're talking about the market, you know, is, is getting towards, um, you know, is over 3 million tonnes a year now. So as a proportionate overall market, it's not a massive surplus. Um, and it's worth noting that I think we see, we expect most of the surplus to be on the class two side of the market. Hi guys, this is Brian Lenny of Money Stock Education and JuniorStockReview.com. Uh, today with me, I have Martin Turen, uh, CEO of FPX Nickel and Alex Lauren of CRU. Hi guys. Hey, Brian. Brian, good to see you. Great to have you. Um, so, you know, we're, we last year we did a nickel panel. Uh, nickel's been hot for a number of years. You know, this year is is quite interesting, and um, you know, still I think there's still bullish sentiment in the air, but it's a de- definitely a different market. Um, I wanted to you know start off with Indonesia. I think Indonesia is maybe the the hottest topic in the market from the research that I've done anyways. And, uh, and so for those that you don't, that don't know, Indonesia's influence over the global nickel market has grown significantly over the last five years. You know, it started with export bans, um, companies such as Sinshan, uh, to build, you know, infrastructure within the country. Um, and then we have the MPI to nickel mat conversion, which started to feed the market late last year, early this year, I guess. Um, Alex, starting with you, can you give us an overview of the current and future role of Indonesia in the global nickel market? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's yeah by far the most important contributor to new supply over the next five or so years um, with two, actually, sorry, three key main sort of supply routes, if you like. Firstly, is the production of NPI, which we've been seeing growing, you know, for several years now, ever since the, the Orban was instituted. We expect to see uh, more and more NPI coming out, although the volumes, uh, I think, uh, forecast was sort of 24, 25, 26 around there are slowing down a little bit compared to the hundreds of thousands of tons we've seen coming on each year for the last several years. Um, the other key route is on the hydrometallurgical processing of the ore rather than smelting it to produce MPI. You hydrometallurgically uh, process it and you end up with an intermediate called MHP, mixed hydroxide precipitate, which contains both nickel and cobalt and can be quite readily converted into nickel sulfate for use in batteries. So it's a very important route to get nickel into a sort of a, the correct form for being um, for being processed into sulfate for use in batteries. Um, we're seeing a very substantial, there's, so there's three or four, the first of these projects, um, OB Island, uh, owned by PT Ligend, um, began operating last year. And unlike some uh, hydrometallurgical projects in the past, is proving relatively successful with its ramp up. Um, and we anticipate several more of these kinds of projects coming on stream over the next several years with a combined capacity of um, more than 500,000 tonnes of contained nickel. So a very important additional uh, supply route uh, that's, that's, again, almost entirely based within Indonesia. The final route um, is somewhere between the two, if you like. It's the essentially the conversion of the iron nickel alloy that you would get from the smelting of laterite ore, where initially you would cast it to produce NPI. 
but instead you you convert that to sort of a laterite mat. This is the kind of process that PT Vale Indonesia has been using for a long period of time. Um, but then whereas they uh, have historically converted that mat into a, a higher grade metallic product, which is still used in stainless and other alloy steels, you can instead um, convert that laterite mat through to, again, to nickel sulfate for use in batteries. This is, yeah, this is a pretty, uh, it's more, it's a more involved process, right? You need the additional capital expense of the converter facility. Um, it comes with higher carbon footprint um, because the initial production of MPI is relatively carbon intensive, especially in Indonesia, where the uh, the power base is mostly coal. Um, but provided the spread between the NPI price and the sulfate price is large enough, then you can do this economically. And we've seen over the past um, six months or so that the, the MPI market has been discounted against LME metal, and those discounts have grown significantly over the past six months to a year. Okay. Martin, do you have any comments on it? Yeah, no, I, I, it's true that Indonesia is really, you know, it is the Saudi Arabia of the nickel market. All, all of the growth has come there in, in the last several years. And it, and as Alex said, I think over the next five years, uh, largely the growth will continue to come from that country. I think the questions there, and, and, and Alex alluded to it, are a little bit about the carbon intensity of production, yeah. as well as the, um, you know, who who really gets these nickel units. These These nickel units are almost exclusively when it comes to Indonesia being controlled by Chinese interests. There is, yeah. um, Vale is making moves to expand some of their footprint of production there. Um, so the question really becomes if China is being served ultimately by these units uh, from Indonesia, where do the, where does the rest of the world get its uh, nickel units from? Okay. So, you know, in terms of uh, supply right now, the, the Chinese are are the main consumer, though, of Indonesian nickel besides, you know, the the battery grade stuff and the, the, the laterite mat. Is that correct? Yeah, of, of all forms of, of class two nickel for stainless and class one for batteries. So like, what would you say on a percentage basis, how much of, of the world or how much of the Indonesian uh, nickel products make it to the rest of the world right now as it is? Good question. The substantial minority, really, especially and, and most of the new supplier, exactly as Martin says, is being developed with Chinese investors, Chinese backers, big consumers, people like Gem and Huai Cobalt, um, who are important players in the downstream uh, nickel production of nickel sulfate and precursors for for battery uh, for batteries. So, yeah, of the new supply, ne- nearly all of it um, outside of you know, yeah, if Vale are expanding their operation, they push ahead with Pomelar. Um, and the BASF and Aramet joint venture, both of which are pretty early stage, you know, four or five, maybe more years away from production. Um, all of those new projects are, are Chinese backed. Um, they, they, yeah, the, the PT Vale existing operation, I think a lot of that ends up in China, but that's what 30,000 tons compared to these new projects. So, you know, there's four or five of them just on the HPAL side, the Hydromet projects. And they're each going to do, you know, sixty to one hundred thousand tons. So the scale that is not going to China is 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 very very small. Yeah, because I wondered because you know, like the the environmental point is a big one, and it's it's the one that that pops out first. I think you know as the the concern with Indonesian ore, uh, but you know, you know, China has shown that they don't really care about the carbon footprint. You know, the they'll take security supply. I would say is a bigger part of the equation for them uh rather than you know the carbon footprint especially if you know what the indonesian government has done is they said okay look we're gonna uh, ban exports 
and force you to do secondary refinement within country. So that might even be even better for the Chinese saying, hey, you know, look, keep the pollution in your country and we'll just take the end product that security supply. So all I'm saying is, is maybe it isn't as big of a point as 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 maybe it seems just because the Chinese don't seemingly buy into the whole uh, carbon footprint, but that's that's just a, a comment, Alex. You mentioned before about uh, HPAL, and you know, mm-hmm. for for the viewers, you know, HPAL's got a really sketchy past. You, you know, the share it was was <laughs> almost destroyed by their uh, debacle in Madagascar, major capex overruns. I still don't. I, is it Bobadif? I forget how you say the where their HPAL plan is, but you know, capex overruns. The production's still not where it should be um so is hpal are, are they finding a way to make hpal work is that technology reaching a point where it is a viable um maybe negative towards a bullish nickel future do you think um i think it's certainly so far it seems that way i mean the capital costs have been substantially lower i think through two main reasons firstly using chinese epcm companies um and one in particular um, which has proven successful in, in developing these projects thus far. Um, I think they worked on the Ramu project historically as well, which was one of the more successful hydro projects, um, historically in Papua New Guinea. Um, and secondly, the use of, um, capital costs have also been pushed down by the use of sort of these infrastructure parks, um, the Morawali infrastructure park and the, the one at Obi Island, which put a lot of facilities on site and helped to, you know, the, the port is built. So the, the massive amounts of infrastructure that are required, you know, for example, at Ambatavi in Madagascar, um, are, are minimized. So I think that really helps on the capital cost side. And it, it seems to have been borne out that, yeah, the capex for these projects, maybe not quite as low as initially scheduled, but still much, much lower than the eventual numbers for, for some of the historic HPL plants. Um, but the ramp up seems to have been relatively successful as well. Um, I think maybe it's just a question of lessons learned from historic projects. Um, maybe it's a little bit easy. I think one of the key issues with HPAL projects in the past is variance in the ore grade. I think the, the the process can be very, very specific to the nature of the ore. And I think historic projects, as they've worked through the deposit, the uh, the content of impurities or the nickel content has changed a little bit. And then it's really hard to recalibrate the process if you suddenly need um, you know, twice as much sulfuric acid for leaching as you did previously. Um, and the scale of the project doesn't match that. You need to resize everything. Um, they, as yet, and I mean, we're only really one year into operation for the first project, have have not really been running into those kinds of issues so much. Um, that said, there are other challenges that potentially limit the future scale up. You know, the the there's a lot of good ore in Indonesia, but it isn't an infinite resource. Um, like I say, the carbon footprint is a factor. And I know that Singshan is apparently thinking about, or there's, there's rumors that they're looking at, um, building hydro, uh, sorry, uh, hydroelectric dams in order to decarbonize the, the NPI production, for example, which would take down the carbon footprint of that NPI laterite mat, a chunk. Um, but the tailings is a huge issue. Uh, they didn't get permission to use deep sea tailings, which was the initial plan for some of these hydro plants. So they're using onshore tailings. And, you know, Indonesia is a very high rainfall, very high earthquake risk location. So there's there's clear concerns on that front. Okay. Well, those are really good points. Martin, do you have any comments on the, the HPAL? 
Yeah, I think Alex raises a great point just around the sort of the feed control, right? You're dealing with run of mine or, and as, as these deposits move into different phases, um, it'll, that, that'll be the key question, I think, for people to see whether they can maintain sort of consistent production given, you know, the fact that deposits are inherently variable, uh, by their very nature. And, um, you know, but that can be controlled uh, to a certain extent if you have kind of good processes in place to really be sampling that uh, before it's being fed into the autoclaves. So um, I think building, you know, large stockpiles and having very precise sort of feed control, you know, processes in place is something that could potentially mitigate against that risk and, and allow those projects to kind of not just reach nameplate, but but deliver at nameplate on a, on a consistent basis where they the past, past projects really uh, never were able to. And those stockpiles of ore have been developed because when you're digging up laterite ores, it's the, the deeper saprolite ore is what's used, which is higher grade. That's what's used to produce NPI and ferronickel. Um, and depend, the, the limonite ore that sits above that has, it could be because it's unsuitable for really turning into NPI or, or a good portion of it, but it is very suitable for the hydrometallurgical process. Um, so there have been these large stockpiles that have been built up in Indonesia as the saprolite has been used to produce MPI, the stockpiles of this limonite, and exactly as Martin says, it's easier to secure a consistent feed when you've got a large volume of sort of stockpiles sitting there waiting to be used. Uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, so kind of continuing with like that carbon footprint um, mantra, you know, the EU kind of has led the way. I, I forget when it exactly happened, but it's at least a couple of years ago, maybe prior to COVID. Um, they came out with basically traceability or they connected the carbon footprint to the use of battery metals within that manufacturing chain within the EU. I'm not aware, at least, of any other countries kind of following suit. Uh, so my question is more broad based is, do you think that's the kind you know, the EU has led the way. Are we going to see that in North America? Are we going to see that maybe South America or any other countries around the world? Alex, if you want to start. I'm not aware of anything too specific like that. I wouldn't say it's something I'm keeping an incredibly close eye on myself so that there definitely might be things out there. But from a North American, from the US perspective, I don't see any sort of um, yeah carbon border adjustments uh, being taken into account, I think. Outside of somewhere like the EU, it's more likely to be driven by company policies um, rather than governmental ones, or at least at least maybe Canada is a different question. You guys might know better than me on that. But yeah, within the US, I don't see any 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 movement in that direction. Okay. Martin? Yeah, I think I think Brian, you're referring to something that was published by the European Commission called the Sustainable Batteries Regulation, which I think it did come out about, you know, 18 to 24 months ago in sort of draft form and Basically, what it said was that they were going to uh, require uh, battery makers and car makers to have certifications of carbon footprints on all products to be sold within the EU market, um, and and that they would, in years to come, be establishing a threshold or, or a cap, basically, and that above that that cap of carbon emissions, that that those products wouldn't be uh, able to be sold in in the EU. I don't think that those caps have been defined. You know, to your question there, Brian, you know, I think I don't see anything in the short term in terms of the rest of the world adopting similar uh, regulations. But, um, you know, I think the winds, the winds are blowing in that dire direction more generally, for sure, from a longer term standpoint. So would you would like again to both of you, would you say security supply then is definitely the number one driver of nickel demand, like at least in the short term? For sure. I'd say so. Um, yeah, I think. 
Unfortunately, people in the nickel market don't at this point have the luxury of being able to exclusively know that they're going to secure um, you know, green or lower carbon or extra sustainable sources of nickel. At the moment, it's just getting hold of enough material first and foremost, preferentially and ideally from lower carbon and um, you know, close to region or you know, for free trade agreement countries, uh, you know, not China, not Russia. Um Certainly, those are strong preferences on behalf of the consumers, but that's it's secondary to just getting hold of enough material altogether at this point. Yeah, to- totally agree. There's there's just there is a scramble on for nickel units, and if there's a hierarchy of of needs, so to speak, it is just getting the units. Um, you know, cost and traceability and carbon footprint are important considerations, but they're they're secondary to to just getting the units. I think and on that one really interesting trend I think we're seeing more and more of is really over the last year or two years, the OEMs, the downstream cell manufacturers and the EV makers get much more serious about investing or acting to secure material much further upstream, you know, moving back towards mining and initial processing, not obviously operating those sorts of things, but having a maybe an equity stake or or talking to the people who are producing the intermediates. Which is even which maybe yeah two or three or four or five steps away from going into an EV. Um, so what we what we're likely to see is sort of this transition where we need much more of a custom refining sector that will all operate on a tolling basis, because someone yeah your 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 EV manufacturer will be securing material in MHP form and they'll need to then pay a refiner to turn that into nickel sulfate. Um, a precursor manufacturer to turn it into PCAM. Maybe that will be the same company because there's quite a lot of integration between the nickel sulfate and the PCAM. Then someone else to turn it into the cathode active material and then someone to in the cell and then it can go in the battery, right? So Sorry, into the EV. Um, and there's not a huge amount of that sort of custom refining at the moment, um, but it's much less of a concern, right? There's not There's not really the same fundamental bottleneck that is linked to you know, the the material in the ground um, or the challenge of that first processing step. The, those sorts of refineries are short lead time, lower investment. Um, it needs to occur. And I think that's where we may see more of that final step refining taking place in somewhere like Canada, um, where we're seeing more and more of the sort of the establishment of battery material parks. You know, there's a lot of uh, investment going in in Beckencore in particular, um, where people are looking to establish that that sort of final step refining, which may be associated with some of the upstream, um, the, the nickel processing, which obviously, yeah, you have up in, in Ontario and Quebec um, and potential lithium production taking place there as well, but doesn't necessarily have to. You know, you can be bringing in intermediates from further afield, um, doing the final step refining closer to where, where, the, where the material is going to be used. That's a great point. So do you think, um, is it is it a point or an adoption percentage that we need to see in terms of EV adoption to really spur that? Like, you know, there's there's bits and pieces, you know, Tesla, Elon's been, you know, fairly vocal about, you know, lithium and talking about nickel. Um, a couple of the other European battery manufacturers, if I recall correctly, have have touched on exactly what you just said. But for it to happen on mass, do you think there's a particular demand number we need or an adoption number that we need to see for, you know, for a lot of these companies to really come into the market and say, hey, look, we're going to start buying up uh, these projects uh, or not buying up, but taking large parts in these projects. Like, do you, do you think that there's a percentage there that we're looking for? For me, it's not consumer-led in that way. It's much more if Ford or GM want to make however many millions of EVs it is, and they're going to invest in huge amounts of lithium-ion battery capacity as well. 
if they're going to, yeah, if they're going to be, you know, operating that level of capacity, they need those raw materials. Um, and I, I see it much more working that way on, right? If we want to build that much cell capacity, we're going to need this much nickel and lithium and, and various other materials. Um, and therefore we need to, we need to, right. And that is a, one of the biggest risks to, to making those operations run successfully is securing enough raw materials and ideally at, at, a, at a reasonable price. Okay. Hey, Martin, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I do. I mean, we've been spending a lot of time talking to you know, the chemical companies, the battery companies, and 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 the OEMs, and, and getting an understanding of where their their thinking is at. And they're they're certainly coming up a fairly steep learning curve, I think, here over the last couple of years as to how they're going to solve for their procurement challenges. Um, you know, I think at the outset they they might have hoped that the mining industry would just kind of produce these raw materials and sort of solve for that. Um, as, as by, by the benevolence of, of the actors in the mining industry. And I don't think that's really going to happen without significant upstream investment by, you know, the downstream consumers. And, and in some ways, the, the groups that are the most sort of um, pinched by this really are the OEMs themselves. You know, they, they are having to now deal with these government regulations around, you know, a certain percentage of EVs being sold uh, by a certain date, either 2030 or 2035, half of their cars are going to have to be EVs as mandated by various governments globally. Um, and so they're, they're now under the gun. And, you know, when it comes to sort of deployment of capital to build out, you know, new mines and, and the new sort of refining and PCAM and CAM production facilities, um, you know, there's a bit of a staring contest. I think that's, that's kind of been going on, will continue to go on to a certain extent between all the parties in the supply chain as to who blinks first and who's forced to deploy capital first to ensure that the supply chain gets built out. And in my view, the OEMs will, will be the ones to blink first. And, and the, the, because of the, uh, because of the pressure that governments are putting on them and, and we will continue to see um, considerable upstream investment by the OEMs in the, throughout the supply chain. Very good. You know, uh, much of the talk and, you know, uh, the first thing I've been thinking of when I was getting putting together the questions for this interview was centered around batteries, you know, and and I think that's probably where everybody's mind is. But still, nickel is very much a stainless steel uh, driven market, in, at least in my view. And so, Alex, could you take us through what does the stainless steel sector look like right now? Is, is, is the demand still there uh, for stainless? We're actually seeing quite a big um, slowdown in stainless growth this year in 2022 after having had a huge 2021 um, and then a bounce back in 2023. So, yeah, in this year in particular, we are seeing stainless demand come down in, in quite a lot of different regions um, due to a variety of different uh, recessionary and other factors, um, but but still see it growing um, at, uh, let's see, around... Yeah, yeah, pretty substantially in 2023, maybe 10% growth in 2023, and then maybe more like three or 4% growth uh, in the, the years following that. Obviously, the, the rate of growth in battery side is, is much higher than that. Is is the stainless market still primarily like a sort of like the battery market? Is it primarily driven by Asia, you know, China being the, the big driver? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's still um, more so than carbon steel, for example, where carbon steel is a little bit more exposed to developing economies. Stainless steel, because of the good use in consumer durables in uh, industrial applications, 
um, and other more varied end uses, it does have a bit more of a skew towards more mature economies as well. So the US and Europe are still really important stainless consumers as, as well. But China is, yeah, China and, and, and Asia are, are the largest and, and most important. Um, you know, inflation has gripped the world uh, over the last couple of years, so much so that it's become a, a political topic. You know, this summer in the U.S., we saw the U.S. government institute the Inflation Reductions Act of 2022, which oddly in my mind, you know, focuses some spending on renewable energies uh, sources and tax credits towards uh, EVs. You know, in the past, we've say, seen incentives work. I think China was probably the best example, The, the at least the data that I saw. The incentives really drove EVs. And as soon as the incentives were taken away, it really dropped. Uh, so Martin, in your view, are the incentives enough to push to mar- the market into a higher adoption of EVs or does the market require something more to happen? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I, uh, at the end of the day, I think it comes to what is the cost of ownership of an internal combustion engine vehicle versus an EV and the subsidies obviously serve to, um, you know, uh, 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 shorten the gap, let's say, between the sticker price of one versus the other, whether that's enough, whether the federal EV subsidy in the United States, which is uh, $7,500, whether that's enough uh, to to kind of spur that uptake, um, that I, I, I suppose that that remains to be seen. You know, it's also interesting, I think, how that subsidy is sort of um, organized and, and what's viewed as being eligible um, you know, Alex may have a better view on when sort of these vehicles start to reach sort of price parity, let's say on a total cost of ownership or, or even on a sticker price basis. But I, I still think that that's several years away, even, even with these subsidies in place. Yes. Well, I think on an unsubsidized basis, we would see it getting there in many regions by the sort of the, well, these calculations have been thrown out a bit. Lithium at $70,000 a tonne really adversely impacts the the equation um, with nickel prices being high as well. Uh, But lithium really has thrown it out of whack sort of and and prevented battery prices to continue to decline as they have done over the past five or six years. Um, That said, I mean, at least at CRU, we see lithium prices coming back down from sort of 2024 onwards, um, which will help to normalize things. And yes, maybe in the later 2020s, we'll see EVs, full battery electric vehicles be sort of better on a total cost of ownership basis, even without subsidies by that point. But in the in, before that point, um, we're, we're definitely still dependent on subsidies in order to uh, put the thumb on the scale or, or make that equation work, if you like. That said, I think the key short-term bottleneck is still EV availability. Most of the producers are sold out. Um, you know, any new EV that comes out has a very long waiting list. And that's without necessarily those subsidies being guaranteed. And indeed, the um, and all eyes are on the IRS for their they're, they're due to provide a greater um, elaboration on the specifics of the particularly the consumer tax credit. That's the seven seven and a half thousand dollars that would be available to to buyers of EVs that tick boxes with respect to where the key components come from and where the critical minerals come from. In particular, which has to be free trade U.S. or free trade countries, and explicitly not. China, Russia, Iran, Korea, right there, North Korea. Um, so most EVs, I think virtually all EVs, don't take those boxes at the moment. None of them would qualify for the consumer tax credit. But the OEMs were already and are now only increasingly so looking to reorient their supply chains away from those countries, regionalizing whatever material they possibly can uh, and securing it from 
uh, free trade countries where where they can't get it within the US or, or North America. Okay. Well, you know, you, you both kind of touched on, you know, uh, cost parity between the internal combustion and the EVs. And I think it's definitely a, a valid point. I, I think the, the thought that comes to my mind, though, in this kind of uh, economic environment that we're in is just what the total cost period is. And because usually it's we're talking about adoption rate and it's adoption rate of, you know, with the global vehicle market, which, you know, a few years ago, I think in 2019, it kind of topped out around, uh, was it 100 million cars or something like that? And you know, obviously it's been on a downswing because of COVID because of a number of things, but I just personally, I wonder if total cost becomes a bigger issue for vehicle ownership period, whether it's EV or internal combustion. Do you guys have any thoughts on, on that part of the equation, whether, you know, in this inflationary environment, poor economics, um, do you foresee the, the vehicle market shrinking just overall? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting topic, not something I spend a lot of time thinking about. I mean, shared mobility, you know, car services where you don't have to own the car, but can simply just sort of, you know, rent one for a short period of time and then and then pass it on to the next driver. That's an interesting model, um, you know, and I think people use it widely in places like Vancouver, where I'm based. Um, but I think you're talking about a fundamental shift in consumption around how people use their vehicles around the world. And you know, I'm not particularly well placed to comment on that, but I'd be, be interested to hear Alex's views on, on it. Yeah, I think we certainly the, the overall light duty vehicle market took a real hit in 2019. Um, and then COVID meant that there was no real recovery seen in 2020. I think we're expecting to see vehicle sales increase a little bit steadily over the future, driven by some of the developing economies, but really uh total ltv sales getting up i think they dropped down under 100 million and getting back up to maybe 110 very 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 steady growth like much more meaningful is the 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 makeup of those that overall set of numbers and um martin, yeah as martin mentions the uh the potential for ride sharing or autonomous vehicles is a potentially a, a downside case for overall fleet numbers um i think one thing that might mess up the total cost of ownership calculations a little bit and I'm freestyling a little bit because this isn't something I've given a huge amount of thought to, but is the increasing um, leasing of vehicles, right? More and more people lease their vehicle for three or five years, and then they get a new one. Um, so they never, without having full ownership of the vehicle, um, then maybe you're not thinking about the, the the maintenance or the ownership cost of a vehicle over a 10 to 12 year lifespan. You're thinking much shorter term. Um, and that, that's, may not yeah it may mean that people think people aren't brilliant long-term thinkers in the first place right um you know there's probably a lot of people that might see gas at seven dollars a gallon and think i'm getting an ev even if actually the total cost of ownership doesn't necessarily make sense because the high cost of gas doesn't move the dial enough um so yeah i i, I the people aren't rational enough, enough actors to really think about it but i i, I think but that that's sort of i guess that's the fuzz around the that's the noise around the the general shift that is towards cheaper and cheaper evs and, and certainly when you start seeing lower sticker prices for evs that's going to make a big difference um so you, we talk about higher metal prices and i i think you know one of the big things that um in terms of nickel in particular and we've seen it with a couple other metals across the you know spectrum of the resource market but when metal prices get higher uh people start looking for substitutions you know manufacturers you know security supply there's a number of things that come up price is usually one of the big ones where manufacturers think hey look we need to find a, a substitute for this metal and then maybe that's nickel so my question is you know in terms of 
expensive nickel. Um, how big of a threat is substitutions or alternative battery chemistries? You know, looking out, let's say first in the short term and then look out five years from now, more longer term. So, uh, Martin, do you want to start? Yeah, I think substitution is a key theme for nickel as it relates not just to the battery side, but you know, fundamentally also to the stainless side too, right? You, you see in periods of high nickel prices, you know, uh, there can be a shift away from the 300 series high nickel containing stainless products to 200 and 400 series, um, which contain little or no nickel in, 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 in most cases. Um, so it's important that, you know, to the extent that you might see, let's say an EV driven, um, you know, uh, a substantial increase in the nickel price that has implications on the stainless side on the EV side would maybe pass it to Alex there, but obviously we've seen the rise here, uh, in performance capabilities of LFP batteries, which are obviously have no nickel in them. My general view on that is that that's not fundamentally a threat to, to nickel and it actually helps to keep nickel, um, in a more moderate sort of level from a, from a nickel, from a forecast price standpoint and, and may help nickel sort of reach sort of a Goldilocks pricing where it's, you know, not too hot, not too cold. Nickel producers can make money, but the nickel price doesn't ever go hot too high to, to result in significant further substitution. I think LFPs are the big, absolutely the big concern in the short to medium term for, for, for nickel demand. Um, I think, you know, in the last couple of years, people have realized that it's not just a technology that's used for the shortest range vehicles and only will be used in China or very, very low cost markets. Um, and instead, yeah, you see people like Tesla in particular putting LFPs in the entry level Model 3s worldwide. Hey, Alex, just can you just define LFPs for the, the audience? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So LFP is a battery cathode chemistry. The LFP stands for lithium iron phosphate. Um this is yeah. So so within the family of lithium ion batteries, there are different uh, metallic combinations that you can use within the cathode, and that really we're seeing the market bifurcate into two different main technologies: high nickel NMCs or sometimes NCAs, which contain you know as much as eight times nickel to manganese and cobalt, um, as well as lithium. And then on the other side of that, you've got lithium ion phosphate, LFPs, less energy dense. Um, but the technology has come a long way, so they're competing a lot more closely with nickel-based cathodes, where there was a huge disparity in in performance previously. Um, uh, so yeah, LFP lower cost, uh, better. Uh, they can have better cycle life. They can, be, but they are tend to be less recyclable because they're less valuable. Their batteries are awkward to recycle. It's roughly it can be a roughly similar cost to recycle a battery, no matter what the cathode chemistry. But if you've got a higher value contained within there because of the nickel and the cobalt, then it's, you know, recycling is more rewarding in, in that perspective. Um, also, I, my understanding is that I think LFPs can suffer a bit more than NMCs in low uh, temperature conditions and high as well. But uh, yeah, are less are less um, less successful in, in that way, if you like. But they have some serious advantages and it's proving to be yeah, a technology that really is likely to occupy the low, the lower end, uh, sort of the entry level market, um, and it's interesting to see that yes, sort of the the low end trim, if you like, you know, is is it, your battery comes with an LFP and it will do maybe 150 miles on a charge, as opposed to you can get the extended range NMC battery battery cathode will do 250, 350. I think newer ones will do 400 um, miles miles per charge. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So this kind of leads to, you know, my last uh, 
question, um, Alex, and this is directed to you. So with everything we've kind of talked about, we've had a pretty balanced discussion on, you know, what's going on in the nickel market. What's, what's yours or CRU's outlook for nickel in 2023? So in 2023, yeah, like after a very slow stainless growth year, we, this year, we're expecting to see a pretty strong rebound next year. Um, but we really are seeing huge amounts of supply coming on stream in the form of MPI, um, the nickel hydroxide uh, intermediates from the H power plants and in the form of um, laterite mat from the conversion of MPI as well. And so we expect to see the market in a surplus in, in 2023 and for the subsequent years um, of about 100,000 tonnes, which is not a small amount, but then it is, we're, we're talking about the market, you know, is, is getting towards, um, you know, is over 3 million tonnes a year now. So as a proportionate overall market, it's not a massive surplus. Um, and it's worth noting that I think we see we expect most of the surplus to be on the class two side of the market. Okay. So where that would manifest would manifest in larger discounts on class two compared to metal, but still a relatively tight and competitive market on the the class one side. Okay. Very good. Very good. Um, and the sort of the net result of that is we see you know price our price average for this year is is almost twenty five thousand dollars a ton. Um, we see that moderating next year, but still staying pretty pretty robust. I mean, for a long time, even when the I mean, 2021 saw a big nickel uh, deficit and prices responded accordingly, but really the, the nickel market has had very strong sort of bullishness behind it for quite, for quite a few years now, driven principally by its use in the battery sector. And it's kept nickel prices above where you might expect to see from the pure fundamentals. Um, so even with a bit of a surplus next year, we see prices moderating, but staying around $20,000 a ton. So still pretty healthy, still a point at which most oper- nearly all operators will be making positive margins and, and many projects, you know, their economics would look decent if they're, if they're putting $20,000 a ton in their, in their NPV models. Very good. Okay, guys, I really appreciate the time. Uh, excellent comments uh, about the sector. And I think for for the audience, you know, people that are looking to understand the nickel market, I think this is a great starting point. Um, and you can kind of trickle down into some of those topics that we covered at a, at a high level. Uh, Martin, Alex, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Guys, if you have any comments or questions, please leave them in the comments below. And we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. 
The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.